My name is Paul Rees, and I'm the senior pastor here at Charlotte Chapel. And if you're visiting with us today, a special welcome to you. Please stick around after church and uh, get to meet some people. We'd love to get to know you. The Anglican Church in Sydney is currently wrestling with this question why are their churches not growing? In the current um, periodical, The Briefing, produced by uh, Matthias Media, there's an article about this. They have maintained their numbers in line with the population growth in Sydney, which actually fares a lot better than the other Anglican diocese areas in Australia, uh, which are in decline. But that's good. But they're asking this question because they've spent the last 10 years very intensively and intentionally in mission, seeking to uh, share the gospel with people and plant new churches. And so they're wrestling with this question, well, why, why are we not growing beyond sort of the population growth in Sydney? And so in an average uh, and so there's, a, there's a, one gentleman who specialized in analyzing companies, and he's used his analytical brain to sort of drill into the data of, of Sydney Anglican churches. In a typical Anglican church of 100 people, there are about 80 attenders uh, who are regular, and about 20 that are irregular. And that group of 20 are made up largely of about 40 people who sort of turn up a bit more irregularly, and actually a larger group of about 280 people who sort of turn up sort of uh, less frequently than on a monthly basis. Now that's an Anglican church in Australia. But if we applied the sort of same data to Charlotte Chapel, uh, that would mean that we have maybe about 1,300, 1,400 people who would irregularly attend the chapel here. Which is quite a large group of people, isn't it? And they are trying to understand, well, why is it that these people who irregularly attend, why are they not more committed to the local church? If, if they could actually focus their efforts on this sort of fringe, and they came along, they would see significant growth in the numbers who attend Anglican churches, evangelical Anglican churches in Sydney, Australia. And as they've analyzed uh, a little bit about this, one of the things they've discovered is that this prevailing view in the culture that while uh, Christian churches are viewed positively, while even Christians are viewed positively in Sydney, there is this view that um, you don't really need to uh, attend church to be a Christian. Church attendance is, is unnecessary to be a Christian. And actually when they surveyed those who attend regularly. 45% of those who attended regularly felt that it was unnecessary to attend to be a Christian. So I want to ask you today, why have you come to church? Uh, do you think it's necessary to attend church and be a Christian? Uh, what is it that's going on here that you think might or might not be important to live the Christian life. This is not just an Australian issue. Um, in the Evangelicals Now August edition, 
uh, Christopher Idle, uh, wrote an article where in one day he met three British Christians who no longer attend church. And my guess is that even now you could probably be thinking of people that you know who would call themselves Christians but don't attend regularly. And he gave three different situations. There was one lady uh, that I think he called uh, Valerie. Valerie, who at one stage was very actively involved in her evangelical Anglican church. She was involved in leadership. She devoted a lot of her spare time to helping and serving in the church for many years. And then she reached a point of, of just feeling burnt out and, and feeling disillusioned. And so she stopped attending and is currently not attending anywhere. Or there was this man called Peter, who was a musician, a songwriter. And apparently, uh, they, he changed this guy's name, but uh, apparently we sing a lot of these songs in evangelical churches. But Peter's church went through a split. And uh, it was an ugly split. And there were lots of negative things that were said, hurtful things. And really that just resulted in him, while sending his children along to church, he stays at home. He just doesn't bother attending anymore. Or on the, at the end of the day, he jumped into a taxi, and uh, the taxi driver, Harry, uh, as he drove into a station, espoused the view. He said, well, um, this is how I see it. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Have you heard that? You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. So what does God have to say about that? So please open your Bibles, and let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. You'll find that on page 1175 in the church Bibles, page 1175, Ephesians chapter 4. Today we're just going to read the first 16 verses of chapter 4. Before we do that, let's just pray. Oh, gracious Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us clearly through Christ and through the witness of his apostles through your word. And so we ask now that you would open our eyes to see fresh things in your word, that we may know you better, and that we may grow as a church into the fullness of all your glory. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens, 
in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ." Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is God's word. So where does this fit into the context of the book? Well, chapters 1 to 3, Paul has been laying out God's grand design in history. Uh, God has a big plan of salvation that he's working out. Uh, Look back at chapter 1 and verse 10. This is what he purposed in Christ to to be put into effect when the times will have reached a fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Uh, Turn to chapter 2 and uh, verse 15, halfway through verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. You see, if we understand God's grand design for history, his great plan for the church, Uh, That God in Christ is reconciling sinful men and women from Jewish and Gentile backgrounds to himself and to each other and bringing them into one body. If we really see that vision and believe it, then we could not keep living as uh, Valerie and Peter and Harry are living. If we really get this big vision of what God is, is doing in Christ. That his purpose is not just to save individuals and reconcile them to himself, but to save a people. To create one new humanity, these verses say. One new society that he is pulling together. So that um, this is a display and a demonstration of his goodness and his grace to the whole cosmos. This is key in God's big purposes. And Paul kind of applies it to the Christians in Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 19. And most of them would have been non-Jewish, would have been Gentile people. And he says to them this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Uh, They are forming this new 
house in which God wants to dwell by his Holy Spirit. Look at verse 20. It is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Holy Spirit. And I hope that, uh, along with me, you've just been relishing and enjoying this amazing plan, this amazing purpose that God has. God's grand design for history centers upon his purposes to pull people together into one body, into the body of Christ. And that body of Christ is made visible and tangible in the world in local congregations like Charlotte Chapel, like uh, Grace Church of Leith that is starting today, and other congregations in town. We are a tangible expression of this one reality of the body of Christ. And if we've seen that, we will struggle to be those who are disinterested Christians, who are disinterested in the concerns of the local church. It just does not compute. And so Paul, having seen this grand design, we saw last week, he turns to prayer. He seeks uh, this grand design to be worked out and he calls upon God in prayer to do it. Lord, fill this church with all your fullness, he prayed. That's what we looked at last week. And as we come to chapter 4, this is a significant point in the book where he's seen God's grand design and put it out. He's prayed for them. And then in chapter 4, really basically to the end of the book, it's about working out this, this grand design in practice. What does this big picture look like when it comes to a, a local church? So really from this point in the study, we're getting intensely practical as we think about this grand plan, plan being worked out in the practice of this church here at Charlotte Chapel. And so specifically, I want us to focus on these first 16 uh, verses today. What do these teach us? And I think what they teach us is this. It's a call to urgently maintain unity in the body of Christ. Paul calls them to urgently maintain unity in the body of of Christ. Have a look at verse 3 of chapter 4. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We've seen God's big plan. He's reconciling sinful people to himself and to each other. He's putting them into one body. And so what's something that we what, what's the outcome of that? We are to make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what it says, isn't it? Do we have to create unity out of nothing? No. What does verse 3 says? We need to energetically maintain what is there. To make every effort. This is, this is a unity that is given by God. We're going to consider that in a moment. It's not something we have to create. We don't have to set up councils and do special things to sort of ma manufacture unity out of nothing. It is a given unity. But we are called to sort of energetically and enthusiastically pursue and maintain this unity that, that God has brought 
about. How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, the first thing is that we need to pursue certain characteristics, and there they are in verse 2. We haven't got onto that point yet, so you might want to go back. <laughs> Look at verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. This is what it means to make every effort to maintain this unity. We need to pursue the characteristic of humility. Kind of the opposite of pride. Humility is where actually I put myself in the position of thinking, how can I serve other people? Rather than saying, how can I be served today? Where we come to church and say, I am looking forward to meeting with God's people so I can serve them today. Rather than, actually I'm looking forward to coming so I can be served again this Sunday. That is the attitude of humility. To esteem others as better than ourselves. That, that is the characteristic that we are to pursue completely, it says. Be completely humble. Uh, there's no wiggle room there, is it? It's not, okay, Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, humility, Tuesdays, Thursdays, day off. Be served. No, be completely humble. And then be completely gentle. Gentle is kind of power under control. Um, that we, in a sense, as we go into conversations and relationships with others, we do not kind of crush people around us with our awesome personality uh, to their detriment. We deal with others with gentleness rather than harshness. It means that we are going to pursue patience. Uh, Long-suffering is the underlying idea there. We patiently endure even when others may slight us and put us down. We, we patiently endure that. And instead of coming back fighting to right all wrongs, we are patient with one another. And bearing with other in love, this forbearance, means that we are willing to uh, put up with each other's weaknesses and our limitations. We all have different weaknesses and limitations, don't we? Every one of us. We have different strengths, different weaknesses. And forbearance is that characteristic where we can kind of uh, put up with and um, cope with other people's weaknesses and failings. And rather than get an, you know, in, Instead of getting annoyed and angry at them, we forbear each other. And love is the characteristic that kind of wraps all these things together. This, this earnest desire to do good to others. And if we are to be serious uh, about maintaining unity here at Charlotte Chapel, these are the very characteristics that, that God's Word calls us to cultivate. Be completely humble, completely gentle patient, uh, bearing with one another in love. Would you like to be in a church like that? Where you go into church, and even though sometimes you make mistakes and bumble around a bit, and uh, actually people show you love, patience, forbearance. They're gentle with you. 
they esteem you better than they should. Does that sound like an attractive church to you? It does to me. You're not sure. Some of you really aren't sure. But this, these are the very characteristics, these are the very qualities that we should be seeking to pursue if we're going to take this injunction of urgently maintaining unity in the body of Christ. It's a big deal. It really is the main point of these first 16 verses. So I wonder... Is there one of those characteristics where you're thinking, actually, I think that one needs a little bit more work? Um, If you're not sure which one it is, why don't you ask your spouse or your best friend who will actually speak truth to power? We've been learning about how some politicians don't like uh, those working with them speaking the truth to them. But maybe here in church we can. If you're not sure which one you need to work on, just say to someone today, I wonder, could you help me? Uh, Where do you think... I need to make specific uh, growth here. Uh, patience, gentleness, forbearance. Which one? Only one. Just tell me one. Too many, I'll be crushed. Just, just give me one. And actually, if we want to grow in this, we would really serve one another if we gave each other the permission to say, look, if you see in me the opposite of these things, would you love me enough to tell me? Uh, if you see me being... Um, proudful, would you tell me? Uh, if you see me um, being harsh, would you, would you point that out to me? If you see me being impatient, if you just see me getting an annoyed, if you see me um, just being indifferent to other people rather than loving them, would you, would you tell me? If we gave each other the permission to do that, uh, by God's grace and His Spirit, I think we can actually move forward in these very characteristics that will help us to maintain unity in this body. And Paul says, be eager about it. Uh, the word make every effort has the idea of haste, urgency, kind of, uh, kind of the Nike ad. Just do it. Do it. Keep doing it. Keep pursuing it. This is what we need, God's word says. If we get a vision of what God's doing, this is his great purposes to unite people together, then surely it is something that that we need to pursue. Now why, why? Well, there's a number of reasons given in the text. Firstly, because we are one. Look at verses four to six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you are called one Lord One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Just as Liam led the service this morning, pointing out how the triune God is at work in salvation, these verses point out that the unity of uh, our church is rooted in the triune God. Do you see that? Um, There is one body because there's only one Holy Spirit who applies the work of Christ and brings people together in his church. There is um, only one hope, one faith, one baptism because there is only one Lord Jesus Christ. 
in whom we are trusting and hoping and in whom we are baptized. And there is only one family because there is only one God and Father of all who is sovereign over all and through all and in all. You see, the unity of the church is rooted in this reality of the unity of the triune God. Just as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are sticking together, so we as a church are to stick together because our life is rooted in that one reality of God. It is a profound theological unity, a given unity. Uh, John Stott in his commentary um, uses this analogy. Uh, it talks about Mr. and Mrs. Smith who have uh, three children, Tom, Dick, and Harry. And, you know, they are united together through, through marriage, uh, through family bonds. But it's possible that over the years that Mr. and Mrs. Smith just quarrel and argue and eventually separate and move into different homes. And the boys can argue and fight and Tom can move to America and uh, Dick can move to Australia and Harry can move to South Africa. And at one level you could say, well, yes, they're, they're united, they are one family, but what a sad family. What a sad, unhappy family. God has created this profound unity and that is the reason why we pursue uh, this eager, eager desire to maintain unity together in the body of Christ. That is the logic here. That's why we urgently do it, because we are one. Secondly, because we need equipping by men gifted by Christ. Look at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. We receive from Christ not only saving grace, but actually serving grace. And he gives each one of us gifts. Uh, in addition to our talents and our abilities, he gives us spiritual gifts that we can use. And... What Paul does here is he quotes from Psalm 68. And in Psalm 68, it speaks of God, uh, his act of salvation, uh, taking a people from himself, um, delivering them from their enemies, and this victorious journey to Zion with uh, all the captives behind God and his victory. And in these ancient battles, you know, once you've won the victory, you've gathered all the spoils. What happens is that the spoils are shared out with the people. Tribute is passed out. And Paul takes up this psalm and he uses it of Christ. And says, here is God's victory in Christ. Christ who descended from heaven and took on human flesh in the incarnation. Who humbled himself all the way down, down, down to the, the, the depths of, of even being crucified on a cross. And there winning this great victory of forgiveness of sins that makes us right with God. And, and the victory of the resurrection, he ascends back to God's right hand. And at God's right hand, he receives all the benefits of this salvation. And he shows this by pouring out the Spirit who enables us to have these different gifts. That's what's going on in this quote from Psalm 68. And specifically, he begins by thinking about particular gifts, word gifts to the church. Verse 11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, 
Some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service. The ascended Christ, out of the victories of his death and resurrection, he gifts the church with men who speak God's word. Uh, Each of these categories are are people who speak God's words in different ways. And at the time that Paul is writing, all these were present in the church. The apostles and prophets, those who uh, saw and witnessed the life of Christ and his resurrection. Uh, They who play a foundational role in the life of the church. I don't think we have apostles and prophets in this way today. Turn back to uh, chapter 2, verse 20, and see this foundational role. You're members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. They were the ones who saw the life of Jesus, uh, who saw the resurrection of Christ, and through their testimony, we have God's word written down. Now, by definition, we have no one left who actually uh, was around to see the life of Jesus. These were foundational people, the apostles and prophets, people who spoke out the word of God in that way. But what we do have today are evangelists, pastors, and teachers who take that word that was spoken by the apostles and prophets and they continue to speak it out. Evangelists who continue to speak out the gospel, calling for men and women and boys and girls to to repent of their sins and put their trust in Christ. And we have teachers who teach this word to uh, people so that we get it in its depth. And pastors who teach God's word and who shepherd the flock. These are gifts that God gives to his church. Specifically to prepare, to equip each member in this work of service that we are all called to do. It is an amazing vision of church. And do you see what the logic of what Paul is saying here? We need to eagerly maintain the unity of the body of Christ Because it's only as we participate in the body of Christ that we're going to benefit from those who are gifted word teachers, from evangelists, pastors, and teachers who are going to teach us God's word. At the center of a healthy, growing, thriving church, you will discover a healthy Bible teaching ministry. This is what drives and feeds a healthy church. If you want to you know, point to me a sickly church is not doing very well, I would suggest to you one of the problems is they're not getting regular, faithful Bible teaching from pastors, evangelists, and teachers at the, at the heart of what they're doing. We need to eagerly maintain unity because that is the gift that God has given us. Together, we will learn from those who are gifted to speak God's word to us. I grew up in a brethren church, and I'm very thankful to God for that. We strongly believed in the priest or believers. But where I sometimes think we, 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 we lost the plot a bit is that we failed to understand that actually not all were gifted to teach and preach and to evangelism. And so Sunday by Sunday, you could have people who had a go, and they clearly weren't gifted, and it wasn't very edifying. Um, 
There are problems with Baptist churches we'll come to in a moment. But um, we need gifted word teachers. It's essential for a healthy church. So why do we need to urgently maintain unity? Well, one, because we're one. Secondly, because we need equipping by men gifted by Christ. And thirdly, because we need each other's diverse gifts to attain maturity. Look back at chapter, uh, verse 12. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Verse 7. To each one of us, grace has been given. Grace has been given not just to pastors, teachers, and evangelists. This is the view of church which sees the pastor-teacher as essentially the bus driver and the members of the church as being driving on the bus. This is the problem with some Baptist and congregational churches. That's what the brethren say anyway. So, uh, you know, where the, the, the view is that the pastor, he's the one who does all the ministry. He's driving and everyone's in the back of the bus. Some are falling asleep in the bus, enjoying the ride. Uh, when people don't like the ride, they, they shout things from the back about how the pastor could do a better job. And if they don't like the direction it's going, they sack the guy and get a new bus driver. Uh, and there's that view of congregational life. That's not, a, that's not a biblical view, is it? While we play a, an important role for the pastor, teacher, evangelist teaching the, the flock, his role is to, alongside all the members, to be working together. So that we become a mature church. We need every member ministry. All of us have gifts given by the ascended Christ. That he has given us. That we can serve one another in love. That's what's going on here. Verse 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith. One of the signs of a healthy church is a growing confidence in the gospel, a growing confidence in doctrine, in scripture, that we all have a firmer grasp of it together and we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. I've known families um, who've decided, actually, I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm going to have church with my family. We're going to gather the, the, the kids around. I'm going to do a Bible reading, and that's our church. And to which I would say, no, you don't have a church. You just meet with your family. And actually, what you're going to miss out on is huge. You're going to miss out from those gifted to teach you, and you're going to miss out in a growing confidence in the doctrine of scripture and you're going to miss out in knowing Jesus Christ if we really want to know the Lord Jesus Christ grow in our knowledge of him we cannot do that in isolation in our own little bedroom or around our own little family table we need to be part of the church isn't that what scripture says here so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. To the, to the Christian that says, actually, I don't want to participate in church. 
I would want to say, you're as useful as a kidney lying on the ground outside of a body. You're as useful as a, as a liver separated from a body. That's not very useful. Our poor brother, Johnny Wilson, is discovering how useful toes are. This poor brother lost some toes this summer. And you think, well, toes. What do toes do? Well, he's having to learn to walk again. Toes are incredibly useful. Toes just lying around apart from the body are utterly useless. A dismembered body is not healthy, is not functioning, is not growing, is not mature. And you impoverish yourself when you remove yourself from the fellowship church and you impoverish that church to which you could have belonged that needs your gifts, your love, your service. We need each other's diverse gifts to attain maturity and become fully like Christ. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of of Christ. So what would Christ have to say to us today? It would be this. I've given you gifted word ministers to equip you to serve with your diverse gifts so that as a church you'll better know me and grow into spiritual maturity. That's what Christ has done. So the question is, what are we going to do? Um, urgently maintain unity. Are we going to do it or not? Well, the answer could be no. No, I'm not. I'm not. Um, I'm going to agitate for division and unhappiness. Well, what does that look like when a, when a church is like that? Well, have a look at verse 14. Instead of the mature man that is portrayed in verse 13, verse 14, we will be like infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. It is a serious thing to be uh, separated from the body, to be in a divided church that doesn't uh, receive the benefit of, of, of word ministry. And uh, to the person who says, you know, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian, you'd have to say, well, that's true. That's true if you want to be an immature and unstable Christian. That's absolutely right. But would you really want to be that? And looking back over the last 20 years, it's amazing to me to see the different waves that have rolled in and hit churches from the, uh, the prophetic movement of the Kansas City prophets and the Lakeland Revival with Todd Bentley and... The prosperity gospel and prosperity lights like Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer and others, they come in and, my friends, unless we are solidly rooted in the Word of God, we're going to be blown around by all this strange, wacky teaching. And there are deceitful men who just want your money and who are distorting the truth. And so divisive People in, divisive, in divided churches are, are, are very dangerous. They're impacting the, the health and maturity of the whole body to stand on the truth of God's word and to really know Christ and as a church to grow in Christ-likeness. And even in Jeremiah's day, from our reading today, there were false prophets who 
rather than teaching the revealed word of God, delighted to teach what their deluded dreams were about. And there's still plenty of false prophets today teaching deluded dreams rather than the word of God. So, well, what does it look like to urgently maintain unity? We'll have a look at verse 15 and 16. Instead, speaking the truth in love, truthing in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is what a a united church looks like. It's a church where people gather together to speak the truth in love to one another. When I ask you at the beginning, why did you come to church? I hope that you come to church to be fed by God's word, uh, by whoever's preaching and teaching that day. And I hope that you're coming to also to serve the body by seeking to speak the truth in love to one another. I think a very important time when we gather is the time just after the final hymn, when we can turn around and talk to each other. And what I would urge you to do is redeem that time, make it useful. We've just experienced church together. What a great time to turn around and say, what did you think of today? What did the Lord teach you today? What challenged you today? What encouraged you today? as we can speak the truth of God's word into each other's lives. That is a healthy church. A healthy church that is growing up into the leadership of Christ and from whom the life of Christ is flowing down to the whole body. This is a healthy church. The Sydney Anglicans discovered that the churches that retained more newcomers and pulled in fringe people were the churches where there was real, healthy, growing disciples. The sort of place that when people turn up, they're not only saying, wow, I really liked what the speaker had to say, the preacher had to say, I'd like to hear some more of that. They're saying, wow, I really like the sort of people that, this gospel is making. And I want to be around people like that. Doesn't that ring true? I mean, I've been to churches where the, the, the word was preached soundly and nobody welcomed me. No one even smiled at me. And I walked out again. I thought, I'm never going back there again. No, the churches that grow are those where there's healthy, growing disciples who are excited about the gospel and are living out this life together in community. That is intensely attractive. And that is the vision that we have here in verses 15 to 16 of a church that is urgently maintaining unity together in the body. Well, what about you? What are you going to do today? If, um, if you're a Christian here today, are you a member of a particular church? If you're visiting here, are you a member of a church where you come from? I don't know, it just seems logical to me if we really understand God's grand design, chapters 1 to 3, if we really want to work that out and practice chapter 4 onwards, the minimum place is to start by committing, saying, actually, you can count me in as a member of this church. Leaders, please care for me. I want to exercise my gifts in this church. Count me in. Is that not the minimum place if we take this seriously? There's a membership class coming up in a few weeks. You could learn about membership here at Charlotte if you want. 
Do you come Sunday by Sunday eager to be equipped? Do you come Sunday by Sunday with a heart, Lord, who can I serve today? This would be a great prayer as you come to church. Lord, help me to love and serve just one person specifically this Sunday. Look out for that opportunity where you can bless somebody and move them forwards in their understanding of Christ. Just, if everybody came, just do that with one person each Sunday. How exciting that would be, would it not? I want to be part of that church. And praise God, there are people like that in this church. And if every part is doing that, my friends, we will grow up into Christ. Into the fullness of Christ. And fulfill God's grand design for us here at Charlotte Chapel. Let's pray.